Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to season two of the Sing When You're Losing podcast. We are here to help you learn to make the most of every situation. Setbacks and struggles aren't meant to stop us, they're meant to teach us. So whatever you're going through, it's only temporary, but you still have to endure it. So if you're going to live it, you may as well learn to sing when you're losing. In the upcoming weeks, we'll be talking to various guests about ways to make the most of the current crisis we're in. None of us would choose this, but I believe that it's possible to come out of it stronger than when you went in. Obviously, all the current episodes will be recorded online, so please be patient with the occasional lack of sound quality. If you can persevere, I have no doubt that you will enjoy it and grow from it. Now, join me, your host, Buddy Owen, as you learn to sing when you're losing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. Really excited about today's guest. I've got former Liverpool and England goalkeeper Chris Kirkland uh, on the show today. And uh, I know that he's going to have lots to share with us. Again, uh, uh, it's recorded online. So if there are some sound difficulties, we apologize, but we're trying to make the most of a difficult situation. So tune in, get comfy, and let's hear what wisdom Chris Kirkland can give mm. to us today. Already laughing. You like that word wisdom, huh, Chris? I did, yeah. I'm not too, too sure how much wisdom there'll be, but I'm trying <laughs> my best. I'm sure there'll be plenty. So Chris, for those who don't know you very well, uh, just take a couple of minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what you do. Yeah, well, I was, um, I was born in Leicester. I lived down in Leicester till I was nine, until I moved up to Liverpool. Uh, started at Coventry City in the youth team, managed to progress for the first team there. Loved my time there, but always been a Liverpool fan. My first game was in 88. My dad brought me up to Anfield, used to stand in the cop watching a lot of games when, when we could afford it. So, um, you know, I've always supported Liverpool. So to sign for them was was literally a dream come true. Lived up here ever since. Uh, was it Liverpool? Was it uh, Wigan locally? You know, I went to Sheffield Wednesday, Preston. So we've always stayed up in the northwest. Love it up here. Um, obviously, come over to, to Coldy to play golf for you chaps quite a bit as well, So which is great. But lovely place to live. And we'll, uh, we'll definitely stay here now. So now I've retired. Obviously, I've retired in... Was it four years ago now? 2016. Um, been doing bits. Obviously, been through a tough time, which we'll talk about. But yeah, starting really, really good now. Obviously, this situation, which is put a stop to a lot of things we had planned. But yeah, got a lot of things going on with charities and my own goalkeeper academy, and do a lot for the club. Liverpool as a club have been amazing. Um, you know, I do a lot for them. Just at start with the foundation, doing a lot of charity work going into schools and, and uh, veteran centres. And there's a lot of plans going forward, which are obviously on hold at the minute. But I'm um, looking forward to doing all that once we get the once we get the go-ahead and everything's safe. So just to say to everyone, uh, I told you that every person that I interview won't be a Liverpool fan. Uh, but today, they still are. So I hope you can deal with that. Uh, Chris is a Liverpool fan and uh, I, the next guest won't be. I won't tell you who it'll be, but the next guest won't be a Liverpool fan. So what is it? So you're obviously home in isolation. Now, who are you home with? Uh, my wife, Leona, my daughter, Lucy, and, and the dog, Sam. So, uh, yeah, we, we actually had to start ours a bit earlier before it was all officially locked down because Lucy got sent home from school. 
uh, with a with a cough and she wasn't very well at all. But luckily, she didn't have the coronavirus, but we had to self-isolate for two weeks before the lockdown started. So I think we're coming up to our sixth week now. Wow. So it's, um, wow. yeah, the first, to be honest, the first two or three weeks were tough, really tough. I mean, listen, it's still tough now. It's just... But it's all in in a bad way. It's almost becoming a little bit normal now. The daily routine, you know, you're almost accepting it now. What you're doing, what you can't do, you know what exactly what it is now. Whereas before, at the start, it was an almighty shock because none of us are used to that. Um, but after a couple of weeks, it started to become. You know, in the last two weeks, we've accepted it. We know what it is, and we've, you've just got to get on with it. You know, you can either just totally withdraw yourself and, and sit in the house and, and, you know, it's easy just to sit and do nothing all day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we try and be as active as we can, like yourself. We're, we're big into fitness. Um, so we try and keep as fit as we can. On Sunday, I was not, I wouldn't say down. I was just, I don't like Sundays anyway. And I just, I, they're just too relaxed for me. And I, I like to be doing stuff. So I just thought, what can I do this week to, you know, to, to give myself something to do. So I put a tweet out and suddenly saying, oh, I'm going to face time keepers who, who want advice or any questions you want to ask us. So I've been doing that all this week and it's been brilliant. Oh, so the youngest I've spoken to was four years old and the oldest was 61. So I've spent three or four hours every day doing that, which has been brilliant. Uh, doing my fitness stuff, got a, got a bike in the house, got one that can go out in, obviously walking Sam as well. So we've been doing stuff in the garden, training Lucy. She's into a goalkeeping, as you know, and been training her in the back garden. So... Just trying to break the day up. We're trying to not do some, not do everything at once. As soon as we get up, we're trying to break it down over the course of the day. So, and the days have been, you know, they've been starting to go a little bit quicker because we've got into a little bit of a routine now. But it's not a good routine to get into. Yeah, that's a really good tip actually for breaking things up throughout the day so that you're not uh, just doing something for a few hours or an hour or so in the morning and then just sat yeah. for the rest of the day. I think, I think that's really good, really important. What do you do for your training then? What, what kind of in the back garden? So I've got a Watt bike. I've got a Watt bike in the front room. So I've been, I've been doing that every day more or less, at least an hour on that, an hour and a half. And then, yeah, putting Netflix on to watching that Joe Exotic at the minute on that. So that passes the time a little bit. But yeah, doing that and then take the dog out, obviously, for the hour we get to go out. Just trying to fill the time of the day, you know, doing a lot of stuff in the house, been jet washing, as I think most of the country has. Um, trying to get hold of paint, it's a bit difficult. I want to paint the fencing and all that around the back, but all the paint's sold out at the minute. So yeah, we're just trying to just trying to come up with things to do and keep busy. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. I've done the jet washing yeah. and also bought some paint. So I yeah. think we're, we're I think all going. Has that is paint, paint and cake mix is almost impossible to get get hold of. I think everyone's baking as well. So cake mix. Certainly, yeah, Lucy's been doing a lot of baking. Yeah, the flour has been difficult yeah. to get, just plain flour. It is. Yeah. Just with Lucy for a minute, uh, you... She is uh, a goalkeeper. Tell us, can you tell us where she's up to? She, well, she's just, she was at Liverpool under 14. So she's been in Liverpool since she was under 10s. Uh, but obviously everything's stopped there now. So we, we pulled her out of that because it was getting a little bit, a little bit too serious. Um, she, she wasn't enjoying it as much as she did. So she still plays for Lancashire. But yeah, she, she loves her football. She, she went through a stage where she weren't enjoying it. And that's why we, you know, we said to her, look, if you're not enjoying it, come away from Liverpool. But there's a few teams now that wanted to go to them. Obviously, everything's on hold now. But she, yeah, she's obsessed with football. We go to all the Liverpool games. And... How does she feel about her dad coaching her? Because that doesn't always work well. No, it doesn't. We have, yeah, we have, um, we have our disagreements when we're coaching. So I say to her, when I'm coaching, I'm not, I'm not your dad. 
I'm your coach, so if you don't listen or if you try and overrule me and stuff like that, it's not going to work. So we, we at the start, it was a little bit difficult, and then I, I think it was me. I said, I ain't tra- I'm not training you anymore. I said, I'm not, I'm not doing it. You just, you're not listening and stuff like that. But now she, she, uh, she loves it now when we do it. So it's, uh, she's, she's so professional and dedicated as well. So it's, it's easier now. Excellent. So tell us, you said you're working with charities a bit. Uh, you started your Goalkeeper Academy. Tell us a bit more about what you're doing now. Yeah, well, obviously the, the Academy's on hold. Uh, we've got some good lads there. So enjoy that, really enjoy that. Got obviously links. If I feel that somebody's pretty decent, I'll, I'll put them in touch with either Liverpool or, or Preston and teams like that. So good links at Liverpool, obviously with Mark Morris, who's, a, who's the head of the Academy and stuff there. And obviously John Actor there as well. So... Uh, there's a couple of lads that have got a, a decent chance for that. Uh, the charity stuff, yeah, I do a lot of voluntary stuff. I'm going to start with the Found Liverpool Foundation as well, which is which is not common knowledge yet, but it, uh, um, it will be soon. So I'm going to be doing a lot of stuff with them, Great. going into schools, going into, you know, before this all started, I was going into HMP Altcourse uh, Prison near uh, in Liverpool. So we were doing a, a, a programme, a 12-week programme in there. We were, in, we were on to week three. Um, but obviously then we had to stop going in because of the coronavirus so that was really interesting really really interesting going in there um, and working with some of the inmates the prisoners in there so that was uh, that was an eye-opener to say the least but really enjoyed it uh, and there's a lot more plans going forward as well but obviously it's, it's going to be a few months before we can resume all that sort of stuff but what the foundation do Liverpool Foundation I, I had no idea um, I was keen to get involved with it but I had no idea just exactly how much they do. I think they run like 25 programmes all over Liverpool. Um, I mean, I started going down to a few kick sessions near Anfield on a Wednesday night and thought, oh, this is this is what they do, do bits and this and that. But I went in for a meeting with them. I was there for two hours and they're blowing me away. So what they do is incredible. And I can't wait to, to get involved with all that sort of stuff. Let's uh, just ask a few questions about your career then. What were the biggest highlights of your playing career? Easy debut for Liverpool. It's uh, as I said, standing in the cot when I was a youngster, when I was seven, my first game to, to watching them go up in you know the late eighties, early nineties, watching all them players and then signing for them. And now I get the chance to work with them on match days. You know the players that I watched as a kid. You know Groblar, Barnes, Rush, all, all these players. You know Dalglish to get to to work with them on match days is just incredible for me. So that's that that was the highlight making my debut. And now it's working with these legends of the game. Who's the best player you've ever played with? Steven Gerrard. Yeah, played with and played against. A lot easier playing with him than against him. <laughs> um, listen, you don't you don't stay at Liverpool for the amount of time he did. Same as Jamie Carragher, unless you're a top top player. Yeah. And he just demanded it in training. He, he trained and played the you know he trained the way he played and he played the way he trained. There was no let up with him. He was just so dedicated, wanted to win, desperate to win. Drove his teammates on. Uh, gave them a you know a talking to if they needed it, but in in the right way. But he was just his his ability was just he just stood out a mile, stood out a mile. Yeah, always fun to watch play. I think it's one of the the good things about uh, leaders is they raise the people around them. Was he one of those types of people? He was, yeah. And you look at the amount of times that when Liverpool struggling and and you know the special players like Ronaldo's and the Messi's can can do something out of nothing and and change a game on you know in seconds and he was one of them people the amount of times you know the, the games that spring to mind Istanbul you know West Ham in the FA Cup final 
you know, Olympiacos, you know, the amount of times he's done it, it's not just doing it once, he's done it time and time over again. When the team needed something special, he was always there. Missing and play a lot. Best player that you've seen in training who could never quite translate it onto the pitch for match day? See, that, 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 is, a, that is a really good one, that one. Um, I thought about this a lot and it's, it, it's tough. Tell you who's one probably mowed the army when I was at Wigan. Mohamed Diarmi, he, he made it look so easy in training and if he wanted to. But then he, he, in some games, he just he wouldn't be there. Like it was, he, he, Sometimes he couldn't be bothered, but he had so much ability. He was a, he was a top player, but you just wanted him. You just felt like giving him a kick up the bum sometimes, saying, come on then, just do it. Yeah. Charles and Zogby was another frustrating one. Um, had all the ability in the world, but so terrible talented. attitude. Right. Awful attitude. Some of these players are very frustrating because they've got all the ability in the world, but they've got terrible attitudes. And, um, you know, they, they get labelled that. And Charles certainly did during his career. He was, everyone knew about his ability, but a lot of teams wouldn't touch him because of his attitude. Yeah. I, from, you know, someone who's not played professional sports and you know, loves football, you kind of look at it from the outside and think, what a privilege to be able to do what you guys do for a living uh, to yeah. not then take advantage of it. And, you know, I do chaplaincy with sport as well. So I see it from the inside as well. And you do, you see the players yeah. that are so capable, but yeah. just don't have the drive. And it's attitude. Yeah. And, and eventually it catches up with them eventually because, you know, managers speak, players speak, you know, it's not now that the, the biggest thing now that's changed is whether it's years ago, it was right. Oh, that player's good. Go and get him. Now, the first thing to check for is what's the play like off the pitch? What's he like in the dressing room? You know, what's his family life like? What's he like away from the club? So that's the first things they actually check now because the top players are good players, you know that, but it's more about what they're like. And one of the biggest examples probably now is Pogba. Right. You know, he's, he's got the ability, but his attitude is shocking. It's awful. You know, he's, he's too busy posting videos and Instagram and doing the wrong stuff and getting picked up in Bentleys at, car, at games. And it's just, you know, his attitudes and it just looks horrendous from the outside. And that's why fans sometimes, you know, lose it with players when, when players like that flaunt it because he's got all the ability in the world, but he's just so frustrating. Um, people ask me, would I have him in my squad? No, absolutely not. Team would be stronger without someone like that. Well, listen, he's a good player, a very good player. I don't think he's world-class at all, but a lot of people are saying he's world-class, not seen it enough, not seen it enough over a certain amount of time, but it's everything else he brings. You know, it's similar to Charles and Zogbia. You know, obviously, probably was miles better than Zogbia, but the, the trouble Charles caused in the dressing room was not worth it. Right. And in the end, you know, Wigan got rid of him because of that. Moving on, you're a goalkeeper. Yeah. So, who has ever hit the ball hardest at you? Who, who, who could hit the ball the hardest? Shearer. Alan Shearer. Yeah? Yeah, he, he had a rocket. Absolute rocket. He's, uh, yeah, he, when, he, when he struck a ball, it stayed struck. Ronaldo as well. Ronaldo, he could hit a ball hard. Stevie. Stevie G in training. Didn't like him. Javi Alonso in training. You know, all these, te- all these technique ones that can hit a ball. At pace, yeah, they were, they were extremely difficult. But the one that did me, actually, which was, was Harry Kuehl, but he broke my wrist in training once at Liverpool, but he was, he was about six yards from goal and uh, the whistle went to stop play 
and he just smashed it as hard as he could and, and I just reacted to it, stuck my wrist down, he broke my wrist. So I was out for a long time with that. Um, but yeah, probably Shearer, Alan Shearer, he had a, he had a rocket. Yeah. And uh, just off the back of that, with those shots coming in, I know you've uh, broken a finger or two in your time. Uh, how many? How many times? Uh, I broke. So I broke seven out of ten digits. Seven out of ten. That's uh, that's commitment. Yeah. Best manager or coach you've played for, in terms of man management and encouraging players. There's 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 three that stand out. Um, Gordon Strachan, always be grateful for him when I was at Coventry. He made, made my debut. He was amazing. You know, he put me into a team that was struggling at the time when I was 18, uh, 18, 19. Uh, so he was incredible. Um, Gerard Hillier was a mate who was brilliant with me at Liverpool. Um, gentleman, you could go and talk to him about anything. You know, you look at the, the, these managers these days and it's about what they do off the pitch as well now. It's more man management, like you said. Gerald was brilliant. Steve Bruce is another one. Them three for me. Steve Bruce was probably played the best I've ever played in my career under Steve Bruce because he was just, he'd come and put an arm around you if you need it, he'd give you a kick up the bum if you needed it, but in the right way. You know, he'd make sort of like a joke out of it, but saying, hey, come on, you're better than this. You can do better than this. But make it, you know, like be laugh, laughing about it. But he was, he was brilliant, Steve Bruce. And, and to say, I, I played my best football under him. We had a good team at Wigan, but we, we, reach beyond what we should have done because of the way that he treated everybody and the way that he got the squad working. It was all down to him. In your experience, how much difference can a manager make? It might sound like a silly question, but a lot of good players on all the teams, you know? Yeah, massive difference. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you listen, you're, you, you go in and around at Tranmere now, you see the way Mickey is with players, Mickey Mellon at Tranmere, you know, and, and the way he gets the best out of players, the way you can go and see him, players can talk to him about anything. A lot of managers... One of the biggest ones was Rafa, Rafa Benitez. You, you couldn't go and talk to him. You know, you, you, it was it was football, football, football with Rafa. And I think everyone that's asked who was uh, probably the most difficult to play under was Rafa. You know, it was football, football, football with Rafa, and that and that's all he, he cared about. And it was his way or no way. Um, I think any, every player's caliber, Cara speak about it, Stevie. You know, every player that's worked under him will, will probably tell you the same with Rafa. But he's been successful. You know, he's been, he's been successful as a manager. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But for me, you've got to have the right balance. You've got to be approachable. You've got to man-manage your play as well. And you've got to be a good manager as well, obviously, to get to get results. Because, you know, these days you lose four or five games on the spin and you, and you could be gone. Yep. Best golfer you've ever played football with? Best golfer? Yeah. Yeah, best golfer. It's got to be... Michael Owen was pretty good. We had a couple of games of him. Harry Kuehl was quite well, actually. Probably them two. I'm not going to say Neil Mellor. No. Because he's a cheat. Yeah, we're not saying him. He's a cheat. Not a cheat, really. But, uh, yeah, they, them two. Right. In fact, now, actually, probably Ryan Taylor. Ryan okay. Taylor is an exceptional player. I think he plays off. I think he's down to two now. So, yeah, I'm actually quite glad we can't play at the minute because he, he, he was beating me quite convincingly when we had a couple of games. Right. So he plays off the handicap you should play off. Ah, the whole start. The whole start. <laughs> I'm yeah. happy with my handicap. 11. You, you, <laughs> 11. You've been playing off 10 uh, since I've known you. Nine. 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 Now, Neil, don't give me any more than nine. 
nine. Well, when you score 48 points off nine, you probably yeah, should. But it was some attempt for greens, and there was a few old shots, so that doesn't count, really. <laughs> Accuse Mel's of being a cheat, but that's 48 points. <laughs> <laughs> on a, on a putt-putt course, 48 points would be a lot. So, uh, yeah. Ugliest golf swing you've ever seen off a footballer? Ooh. Do you know what? I'm going to go for Neil Mellor. <laughs> uh, and at the minute, I don't know if you've played with me, but he's putting. I don't know what he's doing with his putting stroke at the minute. It is there's horrendous. A of, there's a lot of side spin on his putts. Oh, my. Well, I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> his putt. It's, it's actually painful to watch him talk at times because he's like, he's doing like this. Oh, I don't know what he's doing. He's like, he hits a, it's like diagonal across the ball. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, probably he's got the, he's definitely got the worst putting stroke I've ever seen in my life, and he didn't <laughs> like that. I mean, he's never been a strong putter, but he always used to have it okay. But for some reason, he's just completely lost the plot at the minute with his swing, with his putting swing. Anyway, very good. Yeah, he plays a bit. Of, well, he plays he plays safe golf lights so on the fairways. If he's he plays them little low punch shots, like so, like literally. You know, he doesn't play golf the right way. Let's put it that way. Like, he takes irons, takes irons off par fives and stuff like that. Why are you using an iron on a par five off the tee? So, yeah, he's, yeah, he, uh, yeah. he's going to have to start playing properly or I'm not going to play with him anymore. But, yeah, he plays, like, boring golf, I call it. He's, he's just so boring the way he plays. <laughs> uh, I'm now going to have to have Neil on the podcast so he can defend him. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I can imagine why <laughs> Uh, changing track a little bit now. The podcast is called Seeing When You're Losing. So you've had a great football career, really good career, played for some great teams. You were a great goalkeeper, uh, made the England squad. You had injuries, you had setbacks. So let's start just by uh, talking about how you bounced back from some of those setbacks. So when things got tough for you, when you came into Liverpool, and then got injured when, you know, various times in your career, you've had those injuries. How have you bounced back from those? It's been tough. It is. It's, uh, I think it's slightly easier when you get older because you can deal with it better. You've been through it. When you're younger, I mean, people always ask me that when I signed for Liverpool, do you feel the pressure? No, no. When you're younger, you're not. You just want to play. You just want to train. I used to train all hours, God send. And I, I hated leaving the training ground to come home, which sounded bad, especially on the missus then. Um, <laughs> but I, I literally didn't want to, I just loved it so much. The same as when I was at Coventry, when I was at Liverpool, when I was at Wigan. Sheffield Wednesday was a bit different, obviously, because I wanted to get home quicker. I just loved everything about it. And, and when you're younger and you get injured, oh, it's tough. I remember at Liverpool, obviously, doing my cruise shit. I was out for eight months. And, and at Liverpool, where you do the gym work, you can see out on the pitch, you see them all training, you're stuck in the gym on your own some days. And it is mentally, it is really, really tough. When you get older, you can sort of, you know, you've got kids and football's not as, not the most important thing anymore. You know, especially when you have kids and when Lucy come along, football sort of was second. That, that, you know, family was always first then. But when you're, when you're just starting out, you're obsessed, obsessed with it. And it's tough when you can't do what you want to do. Um, but the, the clubs I've been at, luckily enough, the medical departments have all been superb. So for you, the, the driving factor when you were injured, you just loved the game and wanted to play? Oh, I just, just couldn't wait to get back, come back too early sometimes, so I was fine. And 
you know, you get through it, you're in pain, but you still get through it. And yeah, you just, it wasn't until I probably got over 30, you start to understand your body a bit more. Um, you know, you start to understand that football will not be all and end up. You know, it's far from it. Family's more important. But you realise some of the magnitude of the games you're playing in. You know, I've always said playing at the bottom of the league is far harder than playing at the top of the league. The pressure is far more. You know, when we was at Wigan, we was battling relegation more or less every year, flirting with it, apart from a couple of years under Brucey, where we were near the top half, which was which was incredible. But when you're near the bottom and you know you've got to win a game to stay out of the relegation zone, that is pressure. Not not at, not at the top to win a game to get into the top four, or to win a game to stay second. That's not pressure. Yes, it is, but it's... You ask Mickey at Tranmere, you know, Mickey, he's, he's won leagues and, and stuff like that and won promotions and yes, there's pressure, but you, you ask him the situation that Tranmere were in before they went on a brilliant run, which has halted them, unfortunately, but, you know, when there was nine or ten points adrift at the bottom, you ask him going into them games, you know, that is pressure, knowing that if you lose, you could be 13, 14, 15 points behind, so... It's far more harder at the bottom, the pressure-wise. So you talked a little bit about getting older and how things change, mentally things change. You've experienced some of that. Uh, your yeah. battle with depression is fairly well documented. Yeah. You've had your struggles. When, for you, did, did you notice that beginning? At what point did you notice? Not when it, did it begin, because those things are different things. But when did you notice that things weren't quite right? Probably my last year at Wigan, 2011-12, I wasn't playing. Gone from being number one for four years and captain to the last two years were, were tough. So, but I was at home. I was, you know, as I said, we had Lucy then. She was four or five years old. So, you know, that occupied me. So it probably started around then thinking about it. Then when I moved to Sheffield Wednesday was, was the one. For 11 years, when I was at Liverpool, sit there for five years, Wigan for six years. Same area, same routine, you know, 15 minutes to Melwood, 15 minutes to Wigan training. So everything was, you know, my routine was the same. You know, I was back at picking Lucy up from school. And then all of a sudden that changed when I went to Sheffield Wednesday. I, I had to leave like a lot of people do and work hard. You know, I was leaving at half five in the morning to beat the Manchester traffic. I was getting, I was the first in it training at Sheffield at like 10 past seven. There's no one else there, you know, and that's like three and a half hours before we started training. If I'd have left any later, then I'd have got stuck in traffic. Getting home over the Woodhead and Snakes Pass, I mean, it's a nightmare at the best of times. So I was worried about getting home, missing stuff, getting home late, getting stuck in traffic. There's always accidents on that back road as well. Um, so it gets closed quite a bit. So it started with then like the, tra the traveling on my own, particularly during the winter months when it's dark in the morning and cold and you're traveling and it started to grate away at me and I wasn't enjoying it. I mean, the club as a whole were amazing you know, the staff, and if they weren't so, they didn't know there was an issue, but if, if they weren't so good in the way they treated me, the fans, you know, I started off well at Sheffield Wednesday, I won player of the year my first year, um, and then that sort of helped me concentrate a little bit during the games, you know, for 90 minutes I could forget about it, but then as soon as the whistle went, I just couldn't wait to get home. You know, I was literally in the, in the change room, showered and gone within 15 minutes, which is wrong, you shouldn't do that. But I was that desperate to get home. But over the course of them three years, it just started to, to eat away at me, affected me in the second season, towards the end of the season. I just I just wasn't concentrating much in games. My form dipped a bit. And then the third season, they brought Kieran Westwood in as number one. And I was I was happy thinking, well, I don't have to play now on Saturdays. I can, you know, because I was finding it hard to, to concentrate during games. And the pressure's as hard as it is. But when you've got other stuff going on, it's 
it's it's it's a it was a nightmare, living nightmare. And I was going to sign again from you know because I, I I struck up such a good relationship with a lot of the staff there, all the players. You know, I was vice captain. Um, the fans were just incredible, and I was going to sign again from them. They wanted me to stay in 2015-16 season. And I was in my training gear, first day of pre-season, just walking up the stairs into the office to sign the contract. I had the pen in my hand, just about the end of the sort. Somebody just said, "You can't do this. You need to get back home." And I just said, "Listen, I can't sign," and 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 left. You know, it was it was tough leaving. Um, they didn't really know what was going on. And then obviously when I got home, I rang them and said, listen, I'm struggling with depression. I need to be closer to home because I think that will help me. But it didn't. I signed for Preston, which is just up the road. But by then, it was I was too far in this process then. And, I, I, you know, nothing nothing was helping. Uh, and I ended up having to retire. I was at Preston for a year. Got promised another contract there. Went in to sign it uh, at the end of the season. Then they told me, sat down there, well, we're not going to offer you one now. I was already in a Bad state, you know, that made me even worse. Mm. Uh, went to Berry. We shouldn't have signed for Berry. I, I just thought, I, I didn't want to, you know, I just thought I, I need a break from football. But the professional thing kicks in and you think, go on, you can give it another go. You know, a change of scenery might do you good. But I just I just didn't want to train. Everything that I've always been about, training, attitude, I just lost it. I just I just didn't have it anymore. And I said, look, I need help. And that's when I, Dave Flickcroft at, at Berry was amazing. He gave me a couple of weeks and listen, just have a couple of weeks off, think about it. Um, went back and I just said, listen, I can't do this. I need to stop. And he gave me all the help. He rang the PFA for me. I owe him a lot to this day. So went to the PFA, got some help. And I'll tell you, he was a big part of that as well, Neil uh, Mels. So, because I, I didn't have any idea and I rang him and said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm in a bad way. What do I do? And he said, listen, ring the PFA. You know, there's stuff there for the PFA. Neil does a lot for the PFA, as you know. And and he told me to, to, to get in touch with them. And he's been he's been brilliant since. And I'll mess around and have a laugh now. But he's been incredible with us. And I speak to him a lot all the time. We do a lot of work with Liverpool. Obviously play a lot of golf. And he's somebody that I'll always ring now for advice or just a little text and stuff like that. I mean, he's been, and Becky as well. With Leona, they've been great with us, with us all. So, but I didn't get the proper help I should have done uh, back then. I, I went to the PFA, seen a couple of counsellors, thought I was okay. Six to eight months I was in counselling, thought I was okay, and I was. You know, for six months I was fine, but then I started to miss football, started to miss the routine, started to miss the dressing room. You know, miss having something to do because when you retire, I did all the stuff, did all the holidays, did all the you know. Like a lot of people do, footballers think when they're finished, oh, I'm just going to go on holiday, I'm going to play golf every day. And you can do that for so long, but it becomes boring. And you miss having a purpose to get up in the morning and do something. You miss, you know, I miss doing stuff, talking to people, socialising. So it started, I started to slip back in um, beginning of 2019 and, and sort of said, right, get on with it. Started doing other bits and bobs. And, but I knew that I was sort of slipping back down gradually. And it wasn't until about June time I said, look, I was away on a, on a golfing holiday actually in Portugal and just broke down and just said, look, I feel bad again. I need to go somewhere. I need to go into a, a rehabilitation centre or something to, to work on it. So I rang the PFA again um, about the sporting chance, but the wait was three months to get in. And I just said, look, I can't, I can't wait three months. I need to go somewhere now. Uh, I can't wait three months. And so they said, well, look, you know, it, it's going to be three months. So I started Googling places, um, you know, rehab places for mental health and come up with a brilliant place in Parkland Place in North Wales, Colwyn Bay. And rang them up and said, look, 
had to say who it was. I said, look, I've struggled with mental health. Um, can you get me in? And they said, listen, you can come in now if you want. But I had to get stuff together. So I went in the next day and it was the best thing I've ever done. It was, um, it was tough, park and place. They sort of cater the program around you. So you can stay there. Or you can, if you need to, you can travel back home as long as you're back there for the next day, as long as you stick to the rules, everything like that. But in the end, I started staying over more than I came home. Um, at nights, we would sit out by the, by the water. You could see the water and the, the scenery and we'd all have chats, all the other guests that were in there. And it was just the best thing that's ever happened, best thing that I've ever done. And sitting here now, I feel, I feel great. I have my good and bad days. And obviously, the situation we're in now with this... Coronavirus is, is, you know, you have the good and bad days, but uh, a lot more, a lot more good days and bad days now. Yeah, good. So when you you were talking about your career and you could tell that there wasn't there was something not right because you didn't want to train and you just didn't want to be there. You had lost the love that you had. Yeah. What were some of your symptoms outside of that? So what was life like when you were home? Didn't want to do anything. Didn't want to speak on the phone. Uh, didn't pick up the phone. Turned it on silent, uh, didn't answer text, didn't want to go out the front door, shut the gate so nobody could come and knock on the door. Um, just completely shut myself off uh, from, my, from my wife as well. You know, I was, I was here, but I wasn't here. Um, but just in a daze, I was just in a, in a complete daze. I was watching TV, but not watching it. You know, I just couldn't focus on anything. I just I couldn't wait to get to sleep in the, at night, but I didn't want to wake up in the morning because it all starts again. So it was, yeah, just completely isolation, shut off. Um, and yeah, didn't just didn't want to talk to or do anything at all. Didn't want to exercise, which makes things worse. Yeah, just it was a bad, bad time. Yeah, can relate. It is a horrible time. <laughs> and when you're yeah. used to being so active and, uh, you know, out all the time, it's just a complete, yeah. complete change and, and you just can't comprehend oh. it. And you can't snap out of it either. No. It's tough. Until you're, until you're ready to, until you see that, you know, I suppose it's like seeing the light. You have a moment sometimes, and I had that moment when I knew I needed to go into a rehab place to work on mental health. You know, until you get to that moment, you just think there's no way I'm going to get out of this. You know, yeah. you, you, there's nothing I can do. You don't want to do anything. You just sort of begin to accept this is the way that I'm going to be. Yeah. I talk to people as well about when you're going through that, the mental health problems, the depression, what seems logical to you at the time in order mm -hmm. to make yourself better is completely illogical. So you think, well, I'll just stay in bed. I could just use a bit more sleep. Once I've had a little bit more sleep, I'll feel better. And then I can get up and do something, mm -hmm. uh, which sounds right, yeah. but it's yeah. the wrong way around. It's getting out of bed. Worse. Yeah. 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 Makes me worse. Yeah. yeah. So what has been, so with your, with your rehab, can you say, tell any of the kind of tips that have worked best for you? Like what are the things that have helped Yeah, you? so they teach you, they teach you like, um, it's when you start feeling things coming on, they, they rationalize things. So things that make you feel better. So you think about certain things in your lifetime that makes you smile. Obviously, the birth of Lucy, my Liverpool debut, stuff like that. So things that everyone's got in the lifetime where you think of something that was great and it makes you have a little smile and straight away it, it, it can change the way you're thinking a little bit. So them little triggers, 
you know, when you start feeling yourself getting a little bit anxious, if I'm just sitting there or whatever, I'll get up, or I'll go outside, I'll take the dog for a walk, I'll do some gym stuff. You know, I know now what I need to do to, because I said it's Sunday, it is, it is hard and you just want to sit there and do nothing. If you do, make, I know it makes me feel worse. And it's just telling yourself that, telling yourself, right, oh, but if you sit here, you're going to feel worse. You're going to feel worse. Do you want to feel worse or do you want to feel better? And it's just having that drive and that willpower to get up and do something. And, and as I said, to change your mindset, I've started listening to like um, wave music. I think a lot of beach music where the waves are crashing and so relaxing. So if you start feeling yourself anxious, I'll put that on, close my eyes and just sit back. And, you know, it helps you just to calm down a little bit then before you raise your anxiety levels. And it just helps me to come back down now. Which, so I've got all the triggers. As I said, sometimes I feel still feel bad even when I'm doing exercise or whatever. But... Once you've finished it, you do feel better. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it is just getting out, isn't it? That, that... Oh, yeah. yeah. Once you, I mean, you get on a bike, whatever, well, in the first five, ten minutes, you're like, can't be bothered, but you keep going, keep going, and eventually your endorphins kick in, you know, and, and you know, you're enjoying it then. Yeah. How widespread, I mean, I know some statistics, but in your opinion, how widespread is mental health uh, mental illness, I guess I should say, in football, in with professional athletes generally, but in football in particular? Well, I think three years ago, 130 former players or present players asked for help. And now it's up to last, end of last season, it was 788 or something like that. So that's a massive increase. Um, this is going to be tough, really tough professionals never been through anything like this obviously um so this is going to be extremely tough the uncertainty because professionals like a routine they like to you know they're in a routine know the training and know when they're playing so this will be really tough for them. uh past player you know players that retire as well it's it's it, it's really tough because it's so you're used to a certain thing for 18 19 20 years and then it, it all of a sudden completely changes and you need to be prepared for that. But nothing can prepare you for that. Nothing. I speak to a lot of ex-players, you know, and, and it is a major, major shock at the start. And, and that's why a lot of players go, get really bad, you know, and end up in, in, in places, end up drinking, end up gambling. You know, it goes on. But I will, what I will say, I, when I first started this, it, it wasn't for sport. It was for people in general. It's a, it was for society. You know, obviously, I owe a lot to football for, for giving me the life that it's given me. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is for, for, for Joe Public and everyone like that because, you know, they say one in four suffer with it. It's not one in four. It's more like three in four for me. It's, you know, and if you, you know, at some point, I think everyone will go through a stage where they go through some sort of depression or anxiety. And obviously what's going on at the minute, I think that's going to go through the roof because there'll be a lot of people obviously worried about jobs, about you know, paying bills and everything else that this coronavirus, because I think it's going to go on for not, not weeks, it's going to go on for months and possibly the backlash will be years from this thing. So there'll be a lot of people in, you know, in a bad way at the minute. Yeah, I completely agree. I've been doing a lot around that recently because the the danger is that, that you're right, that these current problems cause financial difficulties and relational difficulties and uh, every area of life is affected and yeah the, massively massively yeah. i don't think life will i don't think it'll be the same again 
I, I really don't. And, I, and in some ways, I hope it's not. I hope it is different. I hope from this thing that we're going through, I hope it changes people a lot for the better. I hope it changes the greed that is in the world because it is a greedy world. There's a lot of greedy yeah. people out there, a lot of greedinesses. I, I hope it changes all that um, because with every negative, you've got to try and get a positive out of it. So, but you're right. I don't think. I don't think. I don't think the world will ever be the same again. I think this is going to test people for many months and years to come. Yeah. So I've been talking to people quite a lot at the moment about actually coming out of this stronger than you went in. So trying to get people to focus on the positives that are happening right now, the the family time that you're getting more time to exercise if you choose to do so, the potential of learning how to do something new, speak a new language or whatever, something you've always wanted to do that you've never had time to do. What tips would you give to people to try to make the most of this situation? Well, listen, at the end of the day, what you've got to, this is the situation we're in. It's not going to change and it's not going to change for a while. You know, we're going to be in this lockdown situation for at least, you know, I think the things tonight into at least another few weeks, at least. So you've got to tell yourself this situation is not going to change. It's not going to suddenly tomorrow write everyone back out again. Even when things get lifted and the lockdown is lifted, it's not going to be back to packing stadiums out and going shopping. It's going to be a gradual thing over months and months. So you've got to tell yourself that. You've got to not kid yourself and think everything's going to be back to normal in the next few weeks because it's not. You know, you've got to rationalise things. Like you said, uh, you know, a lot of people in Australia will probably benefit from this because, you know, people in high-pressure jobs that are constantly on the phone, constantly business, 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 business. I think people like that will probably benefit from this and then certainly their families will because, like you said, you know, you're with your family now 24 hours a day. It's, um, and for some for some families, that's going to be really tough. Some relationships, that's going to be really tough. Look at the... You know, we've got a great relationship as a three, that we, well, a four with Sam as well. And, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been easy for us. We have a moment sometimes, I'm sure the girls will say that with me, where uh, they want to chuck buckets of water. But we've been playing pranks on each other. And that's the biggest thing. Just try and, you know, try and make, have a laugh, try and play games as a family, you know, do things as a family. Don't just, you know, at the start of it, Lucy will go up in her room, shut the door, we'll be down here, but we don't do that anymore. We say, right, leave your door open. If you go upstairs, leave it open. You know, you're not going up there all day. She comes down. It's a lot easier. The last two weeks have been a bit different because obviously it seems to holidays, so they've not got no homework. But when when next week, when the homework starts back up again, we try and keep that structure. So we try and keep pretty much similar to what it will be like, hopefully, when, when everything gets lifted. So... But yeah, just you've got to accept the situation and make the most of the situation. For people who are struggling with mental illness, obviously it's a huge problem for everyone, but the male suicide rate is on the up at the moment. There's a a lot of mental health. uh, There are a lot of mental health issues for uh, men in particular. What... And often, and this is a generality, but often women find it easier to talk than men, easier to open up. What advice can you give to young men and young people in general uh, who are struggling with mental illness? I think it's got a lot better, particularly over the last 18 months. I think there's a lot more awareness around it now. I think we've seen a lot of things now, this what you're doing, TV programs, radio stations, which 
talked about more or less every day now on some station or the other, um, which is great because it is an everyday thing. It doesn't go away. There is going to be people struggling every day. So the more we can, the more it becomes normal. There'll always be a stigma towards it. There'll always be some blokes that won't talk about it um, because of macho reasons or whatever. But I've always said that it's, it's easy for people to say talk, 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 and that is the only way. But until you're actually ready to, it is the last thing on your mind. It's the most daunting thing to ask for help or to talk to someone. Until you're actually ready to, it's, it's the hardest thing in the world. But once you do, then things get easier. You know, a big weight was lifted off my shoulders when I went into the, into the pop and place in North Wales. I could feel it straight away, the stress. The relief was just incredible because I, I knew there was people there that wanted to help me and were going to help me. So it was, um, that's my advice. As tough as it seems, you know, when you're ready to just ask for help because that's the wonderful, wonderful thing now. And I think we're seeing that now as well with the NHS. There is people out there that will go above and beyond to help you. And it's just finding, finding that courage to ask for help and not be ashamed, not be ashamed, not be embarrassed because there's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. It's, um, you know, you're showing more strength asking for help than not asking for help. Yeah, really good. Really good. You're stronger when you ask for help than yeah. when you don't. Yeah, very good. So just finishing off, any books or podcasts or websites that you would recommend to people at the minute? So I've, I've done quite a few, actually. So I've done, uh, I did one today with Anxiety UK. Uh, did a podcast with them this morning. Anything to do with mental health, any, listen to some of the people that have been through it. You know, I'm, I'm, I've just got Tyson Fury's book now that I'm about to start. Um, you know, anything, any, any of these people that have been through it and got experiences, because you will relate to some stuff, some stuff you won't. But yeah, don't hide away from the fact if you are suffering, you know, try and search things. We know the intent now is an incredible place. You can get every information you need. So, yeah, just if you are struggling, search it out. You know, all these podcasts with people that have been through it that you look up to or you think that would be quite interesting because nine out of ten people that you listen to on podcasts have always got some sort of story that you can relate to. And just to finish, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you to follow your career and, and what's going on in the life of Chris Kirkland? Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter, so it's um, Chris Kirkland, at Chris Kirkland 43. So I'm on that, so I do a lot of stuff with that. Um, obviously, I'll, I'll put some out there, like the FaceTime calls and stuff like that, so I'll be carrying that on after this as well, not just during this um, coronavirus, but I'll be doing that after because it helps me as well to talk to people. Um, and and it's, it's put a smile on a few people's face. I spoke to a 61-year-old yesterday. This, this lovely man, Dave, his name was. His son tweeted me and said, look, my dad, he supported Coventry, he's a goalkeeper, he's, he's had a triple heart bypass, he's got serious diabetes and he can't go outside the house, so he's, he's housebound because of his health reasons. And I rang him up and I thought, this could be a tough call, this. And he was the most happy bloke I've ever spoke to in my life. He was brilliant. He, I, I think I stayed on the phone, normally I stay about five, ten minutes with him, but I was on the phone for about half an hour, this chap, and I could have listened to him all day. He was just so cheering. I was thinking, you know what? For someone that's been through what he's been through and to be as happy as he is in this situation, it gave me a massive, massive boost. So it, it's great doing stuff like that. Obviously, I'll be doing a lot with Liverpool still with the foundation, LFC TV. Um, and yeah, I'll be doing a lot more charity stuff. And, but I'll be, I'll be tweeting about it so people will know where to, 
where to look and where to watch for going forward. Fantastic. Chris, it's been a real privilege having you uh, on the podcast today. So thanks oh, for agreeing. Uh, I hope you and your family have fun for the rest of the uh, lockdown. And yeah, we'll try. We'll certainly try. But yeah, like I said, tough, good and bad days, but try and make the most of the situation what it is. Absolutely. And we'll get back out on the golf course soon. Yes, we will. I'm off, I'm off 11, though. Eleven, <laughs> not a chance. Take one of the ones <laughs> off of there, <laughs> and that's what we'll put you. On. Well, have, yeah. a, have Take a great care, day, and uh, we will chat again very soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Sing When You're Losing. Please look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere you find your podcasts. If you found this helpful, please spread the word as well, and don't forget to subscribe or to check back for next week's exciting conversation. Until then. Always remember to sing when you're losing.